Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy art thou, our Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For thou was slain and did purchase for God with thine own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Holy Father, we come in your presence this morning giving you thanks that you are in Christ reconciling the world to yourself, that not with silver or gold but with precious blood you bought us and redeemed us and made us a kingdom of priests. You've called us ambassadors for the Messiah. May we never be ashamed. May we never be lackadaisical. May our passion and love grow and increase with every passing month and year. We ask our Father this morning that even though your name is mocked and it's disdained and it's stepped all over, that we would be alert to the day that we live in. For you promise that a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. In Jesus, you said that you will rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth. All the nations will acknowledge you. We look forward with a great sense of expectation to the promises that you will keep. In this morning hour, as we open your word, please open our hearts. Thank you, Spirit of God, for being our teacher. May you illumine the truth here and specifically apply it to each and every person. Help me with this service and tonight as well as people gather for the meetings on the campus and for Meet the Pastor. May your blessing be on it all. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the prophet Malachi. If you're new to the Bible, just find the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew, and turn back a page, and you will soon be in Malachi. Sometimes Malachi is classified as one of the minor prophets, but understand the term minor and major prophets do not speak of the importance of the message. In the fourth century, that title was given based on the amount of material that they wrote. And so you take the prophet Isaiah, that scroll, that scroll alone is almost the same length as all the 12 so-called minor prophets put together. Not to mention that some of the uh, major prophets, well, they're not as long. Daniel is not as long as um, some other books. And certainly Lamentations, that is also written by Jeremiah, is a very short book. And so what we're speaking of largely is the amount of material that they wrote. And though Malachi is a minor prophet, indeed his message is mighty. And he's a man, really the last prophet of the Old Testament before John the Baptist, but the last prophet before that 400 years of silence before the Messiah steps on the scene. And so he writes to a people who live at the end of an age, a people that were apathetic and lukewarm and who lived in very dark times. But as we'll see before we're done with this prophet, he will look down the corridors of time to the age in which we live in. He will look down to that time when the Messiah will return a second time. And so what he says this morning is applicable, it's relevant, 
It's incredibly important. It's powerful. It's practical, especially for this age of lukewarmness and apathy in which we find ourselves. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, speaking of the end of time, because lawlessness is increased, most men's love, most people's love will grow cold. He's describing an unbelieving world. Now, you would hope that salt and light would change that, but in the last days, the church is characterized as being lukewarm, and the light is lowered, and the saltiness is lost, and it gives evil permission to spread in even a greater way. And so when you think, for instance, of the church of Laodicea, though it's a real church and it doesn't necessarily represent a time frame, as we studied the Revelation, some try to make the seven churches look to seven different time frames. You really can't do that. But nonetheless, it still pictures what the church would be like at the end of the age. Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so you can't saddle a fence and please God. And Jesus' words are stinging, not just to the church at Laodicea, but to the church in the 21st century. You say, well, Pastor Carl, how do I know if I'm really a lukewarm Christian? Well, Malachi is going to show us. He will help us to see really how hot our spiritual temperature really is. Now, let me remind you of the context. If you read through Malachi this past week, and I hope you did, it shouldn't take you long, you've seen that it uh, is built around seven questions. Here's a chart to refresh your memory. He opens with them doubting God's love. How have you loved us? And then in 1.6, how have we despised your name? In 1.7, how have we defiled, 1.17, how have we defiled you? How have we wearied you? Um, uh, how have we defiled you? 1 7, not 117. 217, how have we wearied him? And then in 3 8, how shall we return? 3 9, how have we robbed you? And then 313, what have we spoken against you? So seven questions to highlight six specific problems that the people of Israel faced. And they were missing the blessing of God on their lives because of their disobedience. There are some promises that God makes that are unconditional in nature. He's going to fulfill them no matter what. But there are many conditional promises, not simply in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you can expect to ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so with that said, we come to the second of those issues here in Malachi chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 6. Follow along in your Bibles. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? 
If only there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun even to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you view it as trivial, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so that you bring the offering Should I accept it from your hand, says the Lord, but curse be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. You know, one of the greatest problems in America is not the lack of worship, but the lack of true, vital, pulsating worship. There are people who come to churches like this, they have their bulletin, they check off the order of service, they look around, they try to keep themselves interested, they may check out their email, their social media, they may even text friends, and their minds are a million miles away. And then when it's all over, they think, I'm glad it's done, I'm glad it's over. And the thrill and the excitement of coming to worship the living God has been gone. The zeal, the zest, the joy that they once had has been grossly diminished. And what are we to do with these unexcited believers who come to church religiously, maybe even attend Bible studies, but they're tired of serving the Lord? Now, please know I'm not tired of the Lord's work. Sometimes I get tired in the Lord's work. Every week, my schedule is typically packed with sermon prep, time alone in prayer, trying to meet with lost people and share the plan of salvation with them, staff members, dozens and dozens and dozens of pastors and missionaries, many of whom I led to the Lord, who have my phone number, who can call me, like the pastor who called me on Friday for a lunch appointment, and this morning I heard he went home to be with the Lord. Endless calls, and sometimes at the end of the week, I feel like on Monday morning you have to scrape me off the floor. But I want to tell you why I may grow weary sometimes in the Lord's work. I never grow weary of the Lord's work by His grace. I am more excited this year than I was last year, than I was 45 years before when God called me into the ministry. And that's not rhetoric. God knows that's the truth. And so how do you deal with apathy, which typifies the church in America? How do you deal with these unexcited Christians? Well, Malachi is going to give us an answer. And he's basically going to say that the believers in his day, and by extension and application, the Christians in our day, are people who have forgotten who God is. That's really all an unexcited Christian is. They have forgotten who God is. And Malachi is going to help us to see how we should be enthusiastic towards the things of the Lord and towards the one whom we serve. The word enthusiasm is actually from two Greek words, on theos, which literally means in God. And when you grow in your understanding of the Lord, you cannot be lukewarm. 
I thought about entitling this sermon this morning, Despising the Name of God, because that's what Malachi is going to indict these people with doing. In fact, five times over the course of these two paragraphs, he mentions God's name, that is God's reputation, God's character. And so when our worship is less than what it should be, what he will accuse us of is despising the name of God. Now, if you've read this book, and again, it's a short book, and I hope you'll read it at least once a week over these months that we are working our way through it, then you know the rest of the story. Then when we come to chapter 4, again, he will look down the corridors of time to the age in which we live. The Lord warned us of this age in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, that this age would be characterized where the love of people have grown cold. But remember, what we are studying here in Malachi is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying. The Apostle Paul, in writing the church at Rome, said this in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance in the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Sometimes believers mistakenly think that the Old Testament was for the Jewish people, and the New Testament is for the church. Paul says, no, whatever was written in earlier times, what he calls here the Scriptures, what the Jewish people call the Tanakh, an acronym for the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. They call it the Tanakh. We call it the Old Testament. They don't call it the Old Testament because it's the only Scripture, of course, that they acknowledge. But Paul's point is whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, who remind the Corinthians of the same truth. For whom the ends of the ages have come, these were written as an example. This is instructive. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for our learning. And so this morning, we find in our passage some people who are worshiping in a rebuilt temple, the second temple. They're going through all the outward ritual, but God accuses them of despising His name. And what they do is very, very subtle. It's not like they say, let us stop going to the temple. Let us stop offering sacrifices. They're faithfully going to the temple. They're faithfully offering sacrifices. But the way they do it is displeasing to the Lord. And he will accuse them of despising his name and defiling his altar. And again, it's no different today. There are people who come and go through all the godly formations. And they come here in the Lord's day. They sing the hymns. They pray with us corporately. They give their money. And they can be theologically orthodox and as straight as an arrow, but their hearts are a million miles away. Jesus said it this way of the religious leaders in his day, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, quoting the prophet Isaiah. And so we need to have open hearts today because what these people thought was that everything was okay. And it's a terrible situation to be in, to think that you're right with the Lord, that everything is okay, that He's truly pleased with your worship, when in reality, He is not. So I hope all of us, myself included, have ears to hear. There are two truths I want to underscore. If you're using your note-taking outline, if we are to properly worship and serve the living God, then first, we must recognize that God is to be distinguished. We must begin by recognizing that God is to be distinguished. 
Let's read verse 6 very, very carefully. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts, or you could say of armies, speaking of these angelic armies, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So God begins by reminding Israel that he is their father, that he is their master. And those are terms of relationship. The greatest name, I suppose, that God gives us that we can refer to him as is father. It's rarely used in the Old Testament, but it's repeatedly used in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John alone, it's used over a hundred times. And so new covenant believers are encouraged by the Lord Jesus to pray, our father. But nonetheless, the children of Israel were in a father-child relationship. For instance, God said in Exodus chapter 4, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In similar language, the prophet Hosea, a text that we often quote at Christmas, and out of Egypt I called my son. There Israel typifying the Messiah. And so God says here to the people of Israel in verse 1, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? His point is, is that a son honors his dad. And if you honor your dad, you do what your dad says. Suppose you say to your son, son, come here, please. And he says, not right now, dad, I'm busy. Maybe later. <laughs> Maybe what? Maybe later. I, I, I've got a lot of important things to do right now. Boy, you get over here right now. <laughs> you know, I never would have thought for a moment of questioning my dad if he asked me to do something. And God is simply saying, you are calling me father and as we'll see, you're not doing what I say. Listen to what God said in theocratic Israel in Deuteronomy 21. Moses writes, if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown." Thus they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. I'm afraid if we were under the theocracy of Israel, there would be multitudes of stone piles all across America today. But here's a principle that God is hammering home to the people of Malachi by his prophet, that he is his father. And just as we respect earthly relationships, father-son relationships, so they are to respect him. I find it interesting that in the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment comes before those other commands that deal primarily with our relationship with God. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged, prolonged in the land, the land of Israel, where the Lord your God, which the Lord your God gives you. And he says that command right before he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall, against your neighbor, you shall not covet. I don't think it's accidental that God begins that 
second half of the Decalogue with this pointed command, honor your father and mother. Why? Because God knows in the smallest microcosm of life, the family is where a child learns to respect authority. And he recognizes that if they're going to be prolonged in the land, if they as a nation will live a long time in the land of Israel, then there must be order in the land. Of course, Paul extends that commandment in Ephesians 6. He tells children, and if you're a child today, listen, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you. Again, that's half the command that Deuteronomy also underscores, speaking of quality of life, and that it may, you may live long on the earth. Because now God has a, a people, it's called the church, and they're spread across the planet. But Israel was a corporate people, and they lived within the confines of Israel. And he said, if you expect God's blessing on you as a people in the land, then a son, a daughter must honor his father and his mother. And so God was saying, listen, honor them. Because if you don't honor them, the nation falls apart. There's rape, there's murder, there's lying, there's theft. And that's the problem in America today. We think it's a political problem that if we get the right fella in office, we're going to solve the problems. No, we won't. The problem is with the family that is dissolving. The problem is with a nation that has turned from the living God. If I them and a father, where is my honor? Where is my kabod? It's a Hebrew word that speaks of, of you could even render it fear. Where is my fear? It's when you give weight to something. It's when you attach seriousness to something. And God is simply saying, if you're going to worship me in a serious way, if you're going to recognize me as a great weight for who I am, then you're going to do it differently than the way you're doing it as you come to the temple. And we're going to see again that God will look down the corridors of time to our day because the same problem that they had in Malachi's day, I believe we have in our own day. People who don't really honor God, people who come here, some because they're lost and they don't honor the Lord, and some because they're just out of fellowship with the Lord. They once, with a sense of heart, passion, serve the Lord, but it's now gone. But listen, here's the point. If old covenant saints could do this, with the limited revelation they had, without ever seeing the fulfillment of all the promises concerning the Messiah, then what should we as new covenant believers do? And that's his point. God is saying, I'm sick and tired of you calling me Abba or Father and not doing what I say. And the priests, who were the leaders, were supposed to lead by example. It's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture, whether it's Hosea, Isaiah, or Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. As the priests go, so the people go. But notice the second question that God asks. And it's an important question, and you don't want to miss it. And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name? Now, remember, God had redeemed the people out of slavery. He had brought them out of Egypt with the blood of a lamb, symbolic of the ultimate lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, who would take away our sin. And when they came out of Egypt, they made a covenant with the Lord. 
And God gave them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the people with the Decalogue made a promise. Listen to these words in Exodus 19 and verse 8. Verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And so throughout the word of God, the nation is referred to as God's servant. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet wrote. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, in Israel whom I have chosen. And by the way, we are given that same title in the New Testament. Paul begins many of his epistles. Paul, a servant, a doulos, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this second question is ominous here in verse 6. If I am a master, where is my respect? All masters expect respect. Expect respect. And so where is my morale, my respect? Where is my fear? Your boss calls and he says, I need you here tomorrow at work at 8.30 a.m. And I need you to be on time for a very important critical meeting. We all are going to gather 30 minutes early. You tell your boss, well, I'm not sure I can make it at 8.30. What, what, what's wrong? Who, who died? Somebody sick? No, 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 no. My favorite movie, they haven't shown it on TV in a decade. It's going to air at 1 a.m. this morning. You can't even get on the internet, boss. I, I, I need to watch this movie, and, and I'm going to need my sleep. And your boss says, well, why don't you just keep sleeping because you are fired. Now, in human relationships, when there is authority over us, the authority calls the shots. But somehow, in our relationship with God, we think it is different. Sunday morning comes, and God calls his people to gather on the first day of the week to worship. But because we've stayed up late Saturday night watching the ball game into overtime, we're too exhausted. And you debate whether or not you're going to get up and come to church. And God says, you debate? Maybe I should debate waking you up. And God is simply saying here in verse 6, I'm tired of you calling me father. I'm tired of you calling me master. And not doing what I say, O priests who despise my name. Again, the priests were the leaders. And the name of God that they should have been lifting up, the name represents Shem, his person. And they should have been lifting up the name of Hashem, the name of the Lord. But they were not. They were despising it by the way they worshiped and by the way they let the people worship. And so God is not pleased with these people because their worship was half-hearted and it was sloppy. And sadly, we live in the same kind of day where many Christians offer half-hearted, sloppy worship to the Lord. Listen, it's terrible when an elder or a deacon or an adult Bible fellowship leader or a choir member or someone who serves in some kind of capacity does it half-heartedly with a sense of lukewarmness. Now, you could easily read this text and say, well, I understand he's, he's speaking to priests, but I'm not really a priest, much less an elder or a deacon or an ABF leader. Well, according to the New Testament, you are a priest. In fact, every born-again, blood-bought child of God is a priest, Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And since the New Testament teaches that all believers are priests, what applies to the leaders in Malachi's day applies to each of us because we too are setting an example, especially for those that we are leading or attempting to influence. So God simply asks here, if I'm a master, where is my respect? O priests who despise my name. You know, I think we have a very sadly segmented view of what it means to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Very different from the way the Jews perceived it. We think it just being a curse word, using God in a slang way, and that is certainly a way to disrespect his name. But that, I will have you know, is not the primary way in which the Old Testament uses it. The primary way that you take the name of the Lord your God in vain is when you say you represent him with your lips, but with your life you deny it. And so the people say, as they characteristically do all the way through this book, you're not talking to us. How have we despised your name? What do you mean we don't respect and honor your name? So he spells it out with two examples. Point A there in your outline. They did not distinguish God's name by what they said. They did not distinguish God's name by what they said. We read now in verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Like Cain who slew his brother, they sneered at God. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? These priests who earn their living by handling holy things were contemptible in the way that they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And they were more concerned about just checking off their chore list and collecting their fees than they were in worshiping God. Their hearts were not in it. And the people whom they served had basically become an obstacle, maybe even an irritant to them, and they resented it. Now, they did not literally say, as Malachi is going to underscore, the table of the Lord is to be despised. They didn't literally say that with their lips, but they said it with their hearts. They said it with their lives. I hate to say it, but we have people like these priests today, some who serve in full-time ministry. They're sick of the people to whom they're called to care for. They're sick of their people's kids. They're sick of all the complaints. They're sick of all their responsibilities. People who are given positions of leadership, who are called to feed off of holy things, who've been given a sacred trust, and they find the ministry to be an irritant. And when that happens with the leaders, it typically happens with the other believer priests in the congregation and the ministry that God has entrusted to them. And they begin to serve, whether it's in the nursery or with children or whatever responsibility they have in this church, not out of a sense of devotion, but out of a sense of duty. And typically, if you hang around them long enough, you hear it because the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And sadly, this was a pervasive attitude in Malachi's day by the things that they said. So first, they did not distinguish God's name by what they said. Secondly, there be in your outline, they did not distinguish God's name by what they sacrificed, by what they sacrificed. Again, the people crowd, how have we despised your name? 
And God comes back and says that they have despised my name. What we just read in back in verse 7, the table of the Lord by the kinds of sacrifices they offered. Now, it's easy to see how they could despise the table of the Lord. Look at it in verse 8. He spells it out for us. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Put out on the margin, would you, next to verse 8, a couple of verses first. Leviticus 20, 20 through 25. Leviticus 20, 20 through 25. I won't read it all, but you should have it there in the margin. The law of God in the Torah, Moses specifically stated that the lambs, the goats, the sheep, the bullocks that were to be offered had to be without blemish. They had to be perfect. Listen to what Moses wrote. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a freewill offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar of the Lord. Write down in the margin Deuteronomy 15.21. Deuteronomy 15.21. There God specified, but if it has any defect, such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. God spelled it out very carefully, very precisely. Why? Because these animal sacrifices foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice. And so John the Baptist could say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They foreshadowed the one who is without sin, the one who is tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. And so understand what was happening. Now, that's a beautiful animal. I don't think God needs that. I get a lot of money for that animal. I won't give that one to the Lord. But that one over there, that scrawny blind one, it's going to be tough to sell. We'll give that to the Lord. Let's take that one to the temple. That one that's lame, that can't even follow the shepherd, go ahead, offer him. That one that's in poor shape, that one that's got cancer and eczema all over it, we'll give him to the Lord. That one attacked by a wolf, we don't need him. He's not going to live long. Give him to the Lord. And it was just sheer mockery. In fact, God reminded the priests that they weren't even to eat such animals. One, as a reminder of the kind of animals that they were to receive. But two, as a reminder of the very worship that they represented. They were representing ultimately what Messiah would do. And so God said in Exodus 22 and verse 31, you shall be holy men to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the, to the dogs. Let me tell you what these priests were doing, what they were allowing the people to do. They were giving God their dog food. They were giving God their leftovers. And so in verse 8, God asks, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? 
God is saying those, those same sacrifices that you might come and bring to your governor to pay your taxes, he's not even saying the king, he's saying the, the prefect, the governor who rules on a local level, you wouldn't even give that to him. And if your governor would not take it, if you say, well, here, governor, you're such a wonderful leader. Take this blind, flea-written, cancerous, lame animal. We just want you to know how much we appreciate you. He wouldn't receive it. And God says, offer that to your governor and see what happens. And his point is, if men who rule men do not take leftovers, then why does the Lord of hosts get your leftovers, your dog food? And in short, the priests were permitting the people to bring God less than their best. And again, as the priests go, so go the people. The last church I served in, they had a a deal where you could bring old cars that you wanted to get rid of, furniture, and they had a guy in the church who had as a ministry who would sell it and give it to missions and so forth. And after a while, it just became ridiculous. It became absurd. They had to get a dumpster that was so big to get rid of all the junk because even the Salvation Army didn't want it. And God basically says, give that to your governor. April 15th, your taxes are due, and you write a note to the IRS, and you say, friends, it's been difficult in our home this year. The kids have been sick. My work's been inconsistent. Not to mention, you know, we've had some other priorities. Not the best year to pay our taxes. Sorry we won't pay this year. And God says, give that to your governor. God asks you to give a tithe to him of the increase. And we'll speak about that before we're done with this prophet. You say, well, Lord, you know, there's a lot going on, and we needed to redo the bathrooms this year, and I wanted to get a new boat. You know, I need to relax and spend some time with the family, and not this year, Lord. And God says, give that to your governor. And God is insulted with rhetoric, with half-hearted, apathetic worship. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's the Lord's day. It's raining. It's gloomy. It's cold outside. And you roll over and you begin to wonder, do I want to get up and go to church? Maybe I'll just live stream. And God says, give that to your governor. Sometimes Christians check to see if their favorite sports team is playing. Oh, well, you know, fortunately, that game, the Super Bowl, doesn't start till 3 or 6 or whatever time it starts. I I guess I can come to worship. But they do have pre-Super Bowl warm-up at 9 a.m. I don't know if I can come to worship. God says, give that to your governor. Oh, it's it's the final game. The final basketball game, Wednesday night, right when church starts. I guess I won't come, even though I've made a commitment to serve. God says, give that to your governor. And listen, we come here to worship God. And I know people are coming from nurseries. There's a big switch between services. The last service, which is huge on Sundays. There's parking lots emptying out, new people coming in. Uh, There's people who are late because they're serving in baptismal ministry or one thing or another, or someone pulls you over in the hallway and they pour out their heart to you and what's going on in their life and you're late. I get that. 
But very often, that's not the reason we're even late for worship. Well, as long as I make it by the preaching. And God says, I didn't call you just to worship by listening to the preacher. Also came you to offer praise, to sing songs one to another and to the Lord. Or services going on, and you're checking your social media. And you're responding to text messages. And God says, did you come to worship me? Where's your focus? He doesn't like half-hearted worship. And he would simply say, give that to your governor. This people, Jesus again quoting Isaiah, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. And in vain do they worship. No, we should come with a sense of enthusiasm. Kids, get up. It's Sunday. God's called us to worship. We don't want to be late. We have the opportunity as a family to worship the living God. And yet your son's boss tells him that he needs him to work on Sunday morning. Well, I guess that's okay, son. It's only Sunday. Or, you know, there's a big soccer tournament at 11 o'clock. Well, I guess we won't make it today. It's only Sunday. Oh, we need to get a jump start on our vacation. I guess we can skip church today. It's only Sunday. I was speaking to a man yesterday, and I, he said he came last week to church for the first time, and first time in six years he'd been to church with his fiancée. I said, well, that's a good thing, man. That's great. And I said, well, we see you tomorrow. He said, no, my ball team's playing. I said, oh, okay. He said, that's what I usually do on Sundays. I don't know who plays Sunday morning, but some ball team for him. I said, well, can you come Sunday night? I said, I'm going to have this thing called Meet the Pastor. And you just told me you're 70% sure you're going to heaven and you're not absolutely certain. And, you know, you need to be certain. And if you're not certain, Jesus said you won't go and he wants you to go. He wishes to none to perish. And he said, well, I just don't think I can do it. You know, pretty heavy schedule tomorrow. I said, how about the next time I have it? And I gave him the date. I can't come that night. I said, you know, if what I'm saying to you is, is true, it's the most important thing you'll ever come to grips with in your life. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Click. He hung up on me. Now, look, I, I know people come here late sometimes, misplaced keys, you got the right shoe, you can't find the left shoe, you know, flat tires, a host of things happen, and by the time you come here, you need to be here because you've almost lost your sanctification. But sometimes, it's just an issue of priorities. What is important to us? Do you remember the prophet Gad? He came to King David, David, because of his pride, he did a wicked thing in the eyes of the Lord, and God sent a plague that cost a lot of human life, and God told him how he could stop the plague, and so he's going to offer uh, a sacrifice, but he needs to be able to purchase the land in which to do it, and the animal and the threshing sleds to offer the wood. So he goes to Aruna, and Aruna says to him, the Jebusite, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sleds and the yoke of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. You don't have to buy it. 
You can just have it for free. And King David says, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built an altar there to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. Listen, friends, if it means little to you, it means little to God. And sometimes in apathy, the ushers are late at their posts, the nursery workers are not there on time, the choir member wants to come up and sing, but they've missed the practices consistently. God's not interested in half-hearted worship. He deserves everything from us. He doesn't deserve our leftovers. I mean, Monday morning comes around. Honey, I, I know it's pouring rain out, but I, I got to get this lunch. I don't want to be late for work. But Sunday morning, well, you know, oh, rush. Just relax. I don't have any responsibilities there anyway because I don't serve anywhere. He brings us now to a second principle in verses 9 through 14. These people lacked integrity in their worship, and they needed to recognize that God is to be respected. Secondly, they needed to recognize that God's name is to be declared. God's name is to be declared. Let's begin reading now in verse 9. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Now, God is exercising his divine right to use sarcasm, and he's driving home a point. Why don't you take this crummy worship that is half-hearted and just bathe it in prayer, and I'll bless it. And God, with tongue in cheek, is basically saying, not on your life. Prayer is not some magic wand that we can put over something to deal with a lack of integrity in the life that God is just going to bless. Notice his answer to his own question in verse 10. If only there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. What God is saying is that it would be better for you to nail the, the doors of the temple shut than to come offer that useless worship. Mark it down. If we come here and we're not here to give God our best, look, some people are late, not because they're engaged out there in ministry in the first hour. Some people are late because they're stuffing their faces out there in the cafe. And I'm glad we have that time of fellowship. Look, some churches, they'll let you bring in a cup of coffee and eat a donut right in the worship service. Those churches are a joke. They're pathetic. And you begin to speak to their members and you find out they know nothing of Scripture. And most of the time, half of them are lost. Oh, but we just want to make it comfortable for the lost person. No, it's the kind of worship Paul says that the angels watch 
such that an unbeliever will fall on his face and say, there's a God and I need him. And so God is basically saying, if you're going to have this apathetic, half-hearted worship in the church, it'd just be better to shut the doors of the church and close down. I believe God would be far more pleased with a handful of churches that are passionate and on fire for the Lord than the plethora of churches we have in America that are apathetic. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness makes God throw up. And that's what these people were like. They had total disregard for the name of God. They lacked integrity. And once again, not us. So he's going to spell it out for them so they can't miss it. Point A, they did not declare God's name by their words. They did not declare God's name by their words. Look at God's reasoning beginning now in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, please notice he's using future tenses in Hebrew, is brought out here in English, because he's speaking prophetically. God is saying to the people of Israel and Malachi, I don't need your half-hearted worship. In fact, the day is coming, and he's speaking, as we'll see in chapter 4, when the Messiah will reign, when the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles are going to worship me. I don't need just the 12 tribes. The nations of the world are going to worship me. A day is coming when that will be acknowledged, but for now, we'll hold on that till we get to chapter 4. But just know that, that he's saying, look, if you as Jewish people who saw all the miracles that you saw and the great and the mighty way in which God brought you out and redeemed you out of slavery and yet you don't worship me, these Gentiles who only heard about it, who never saw it, a day is coming when they're going to give my name worship. And that will happen, of course, when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. Yeshua, Jesus in English, means the Lord saves. And the Gentiles will offer offerings during the millennial reign. There'll be a millennial temple. The offerings have never been propitiatory. They were never able to take away sin. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the Messiah. During the millennial reign of Jesus on the earth, there will be certain offerings, not all of them, that will be offered, and they'll look back much like the Lord's table looks back. Why? Because they are going to give praise to the name of God, to Yeshua, who will literally rule on the place that David offered that sacrifice, that the first temple, the second temple was built, the same mountains of Moriah in which he was crucified. There in the temple mount, he'll rule and reign, and all the nations will come because all will recognize that there's salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And we're here worshiping today in the name of Jesus. And where two or three are gathered in his name, he is here in our midst. But lest we be smug and arrogant, I want you to see that what he says to Israel, he could say to any local church today. 
God does not need the people of Community Bible Church. We need him. I've seen many a church in my lifetime that were once being greatly used by God, and the people lost perspective, and God lifted his hand off of that church. He said, that could never happen to us. We are one generation away from it happening. It could happen beginning next week where apathy begins to set in, discernment is lost, and before long, the church is apostate like Stanley's church, where last week he says he's sponsoring a conference, and he has two married homosexual men who are the keynote speakers for this upcoming conference next month. That's where we're at today. You say, it would never happen to us. It could happen to anyone. And so we are to stay alert, as Jude reminds us. Look at verse 11. He says, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name. It will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But he says, notice verse 12, you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. God says, you are profaning my name. And of course, when we think of profanity, we think of swear words. But profanity, again, in Scripture, very often and most typically, is when you live in a way where you are not living in honor of God's name. We can come and sing the hymns and our minds are disconnected and we're profaning the name of the Lord. You can be listening to this sermon and thinking, when is it going to get over? Yet you can watch the ball game until midnight, but let the preacher preach for an hour, and that's too long. That's the day we live in, and we're profaning the name of the living God. And again, the worst profanity, it doesn't happen in the bar room, it happens in the church house. Look at verse 13, profanity of the heart. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you view it as trivial, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. And so you bring the offering. Should I accept it from your hands, says the Lord? A new charge is leveled against these priests here in verse 13. They're bored with their work. How tiresome it is. The new New American Standard says they dis painfully sniff at it. One English translation says they turn their nose up at it. They view it as trivial. And though some of the sacrifices were taken by robbery, some that were sick, they brought them to the priests, and the priests didn't care, and they offered them anyway. Now, it's one thing for the priests not to be giving their best, but how can the people be expected to give their best when the priests have a crummy example? No ministry ever rises above its leadership. As the pastor goes, so goes the church. As the leadership goes, so go the church. That's why you can't be a deacon and an elder and have a peripheral commitment to the assembly. You come to things, and I recognize you can't come to everything, and some people are working on Wednesday nights and other things. But when the church gathers for a Sunday night gathering and outreach or We're here for ABFs and for worship. 
the leaders come. Why? Because they're leading by examples. How, how can I ask you to tithe if I don't tithe? That's utter hypocrisy. As the leaders go, so go the church. And so someone prepares a Sunday school lesson, and it's half prepared, and God would say, give that to your governor. You should have worked hard in the Awana lesson. This is some that all, some of those kids, that's all they're going to get. The only time they even show up at a church is on Sunday night, and we half prepare the Awana lesson. God says, give that to your governor. You're late at your post to usher when some lost person is coming in the church for the first time and there's no one there to greet him. Give that to your governor. Please understand there's more than one kind of profanity. They said, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it. Should I receive that from your hand? Again, God would say it would be better to shut the doors of the temple in our day to shut the doors of the church than to worship him in that, passion, that way. But you, you announce some famous Christian artist is going to come. So-and-so is going to be here at Community Bible Church. The place would be packed and overflowing. We'd have to have special people just to park the cars. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to worship the living God. Secondly, they did not declare God's name by their ways. Not only they did not declare God's name by their words, but they did not declare God's name by their ways. Look, if you will, verse 14. God levels a curse for their lack of integrity and their deceit. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. The swindler, you could render it the deceiver, the cheat. Someone who, who promises God something, and when they come to pay up, so to speak, they offer some inferior sacrifice. That's what's in view in here. And we do it sometimes. God, if you will get me out of this jam, I'll do such and such for you. God, if you'll get me that job with that bonus, I'll do so and so for you. God, if you help me just pass this exam, God, I'll give you everything. But then when the petition is granted, they offered a cheap substitute. They were what Malachi calls a cheat, a schemer, a deceiver. And as Deuteronomy 27 says they came under God's curse, under his divine discipline. Listen, deception in any, way, in any realm is despicable, but deception in the things of God is absolutely foolhardy. What foolhardiness it is, how foolish it is to say and promise God one thing and then to do another. The psalmist says, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them that all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. And the fact that God is a great king is something that the nations, he says, are going to someday acknowledge, and you, Israel, should do it today. His name will be feared among the heathens. So notice the three ascriptions we have of God in our text. I hope you circled them. Number one in verse 
Um, in the opening verse, he is a father, and we're his sons. Number two, he is a master, and we are his servants. And number three, he is a king, and we are his subjects. Keep that in mind every time we come here to worship. He is a father, so honor him. He is a master, so serve him. He is a king, so bow down before him. By the way, did you notice the way this portion of Scripture opens and closes? It opens in the same way that the Lord's prayer begins and ends. In verse 6, he's saying God is a father. In verse 14, he's saying God is a king. The Lord's prayer opens our father and it ends for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I have a father who can hear me and I have a king who is sovereign, who sympathizes with me. It's amazing why some people come to church. I told you years ago about a major church in Atlanta, Georgia, and the President of the United States decided to come and worship on a Sunday morning, and soon word got out all across the community. People were calling, asking if they could reserve seats. What time did they need to be, get there to be sure they had a place to sit? One lady called the pastor. She had not been there in a decade. And she said, is it true that the president of the United States is going to be in our church? Well, due to security reasons, Secret Service decided no. And the pastor said, no, the, the president of the United States will not be here on Sunday, but the Lord of Lords and King of Kings will be, and that ought to be enough for you. Listen, where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is right in our midst. All hail the na name of Jesus. Let angels prostrate, fall. We should come and fall on our faces and worship before the living God, at least in our hearts. We should not be here in apathy and lukewarmness, covered over with unconfessed sin. We should come here with clean hearts before the living God to offer him praise and worship because his name, his person, is worthy of nothing less. So we come this morning to worship the Father in the power of the Spirit through God the Son. So give him your love as a son, as a daughter. Give him your labor as a servant, as a slave. And give him your loyalty as a subject to a king. Now, Father, we love you and thank you that Malachi wrote this, not just for the people of his day, but for the people of our day. And we pray that we would have ears to hear what you say, that you'd allow us to examine our hearts carefully, that if there's some area that we have compromised in, that you would allow us to confess that, to forsake it. You promised that if we walk in the light as you are in the light, that the blood of the Lord Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Father, we don't want to be typified as a half-hearted, ho-hum church. We want this church to be vibrant and alive, that when unbelievers come in here, they will sense the living God is among them. Lord Jesus, only you can make that happen, but thank you that judgment is to begin with the household of faith. Thank you for your incredible grace that sustains us, that secures us, that motivates us, that teaches us to deny ungodliness, to live holy and zealously in this present age. 
Help someone today, Father, to make the decisions that they need to make. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. Some of you, I'm going to ask you to come during this invitation. You might be in Graniteville as a lady came last week. You might be in Grace, but you have a decision to make. Some of you to confess Jesus openly, maybe to be baptized as an emblem of your faith or to join this church. If you fall into that category, I'm going to ask you to leave your seat and to meet me here in the front. Would you come?